You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. Good evening. My name is Trevor. Uh, Tonight I'll be speaking on Luke 2334. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What would your life look like if you knew the exact day and time that your life here on earth would end? What would you do? What would you think about? Would you spend your time speaking with loved ones? visit the many places that you wanted to go, you know, cross off the bucket list? Would you do all that you could to make sure financially your family was okay after you had gone? To the last people that you see on your deathbed, what would your final words be? Today, we'll look at the statement, Jesus forgives those who reject him. And we'll look at this statement and examine it in three ways. Jesus forgave murderers, rejectors, and spectators. Jesus forgave murderers. Now Jesus is face to face with his known murderer Pilate, and I can't help but think that in Jesus' mind he's already saying the words, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. Pilate, a Roman governor, had the sole authority to execute a criminal as supreme judge. Yet he was swayed and gave the people what they wanted. They traded a known rebellious murderer, Barabbas, for an innocent man based on hearsay to have Jesus crucified. Church, the power of sin through influence causes us to do things that we don't want to do, say things that we don't want to say, and why? It's to impress people that we really don't care about. Father, forgive the murderers for they know not what they do. Number two, Jesus forgave rejectors. Now, most of us in here know what it's like to be rejected, to be unwanted. And rejection, it can can hurt physically. Jesus is being led up to Calvary where he'll be crucified in the midst of being mocked, spat on, physical pain from being lashed, whipped and beaten, carrying a cross. In spite of the fact he taught as no man had taught before, speaking divine truth, He demonstrated compassion like no other. In spite of the fact he offers salvation, eternal life in the kingdom, demonstrated by his divine power, by casting out demons, curing diseases, raising people from the dead. In spite of the fact that he had total control over nature and could create food to feed the mass of multitudes. In spite of all of these things, they rejected him. Yet Jesus endures all of this because we know that scripture had to be fulfilled. Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, forgive the rejectors, for they know not what they do. Number three, Jesus forgave spectators. 
This is the final moments of Jesus' death, and he's being stretched out on the cross in agony. And he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The character of Jesus on full display. Forgiveness extended to Pontius Pilate, the Sanhedrin, the crowd who wanted him crucified, the mockers, the murderers, the soldiers. In his final moments, Jesus takes upon himself the sins of humanity, the wrath of God intended for us, and diverts it onto him. Church, that same forgiveness is extended to us today. There were many people watching all of this unfold that day. One of the groups in the crowd consisted of people that were in between. They were kind of fickle. They had seen everything that Jesus had done, but they really didn't believe who he was. They they weren't convinced of who Jesus was. If you are the Messiah, save yourself, one of the thieves on the cross says. If you're a person who admires the Bible, you admire Jesus, but you haven't given yourself completely to him, you haven't fully submitted your life to him and his word, that forgiveness of grace and mercy is extended to you today. Father, forgive us, for we know not what we do. So what does this mean? Three points of application for us. When you're a person who has received forgiveness, You can't go back to the same pattern and lifestyle that got you there in the first place. This also doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for your actions. Number two, when you extend forgiveness. So true forgiveness can only be extended without resentment. For the person who forgives, this doesn't mean that limits and boundaries can't be set. Psychologists even define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. Beloved, forgiveness is ultimately given because we have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. This is a decision that can't be done within our own strength. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit through wisdom and prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Good evening. My name is Ruth Primo. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we see, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Luke 23, 43, our text for tonight. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This declaration from Jesus to the thief on the cross, I say is the ultimate answer to what grace is and what it means. I want to point out three basic but very important truths of why we believe what we believe. Firstly, when we look in the text here, what did the thief on the cross do to deserve grace and forgiveness? Nothing, absolutely nothing. He himself recognized this in verse 41, that the two of the thieves, he said that they deserved to die because of their evil deeds, which is why the focus of salvation is not on him, nor could he have done any deed to deserve it. It was extended to him. Herod could not have given it to him, nor Pilate. And definitely not the religious leaders. They could not have given him the salvation 
and the pardon that he needed. Let's pause here for a moment and think, how often do we look at other things for salvation? Maybe that's our governmental structures, our finances, our relationships, or even our comfort. But you know what? Who gave this thief the declaration of salvation? It is the one and only Christ, Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The thief on the cross found the way. Not by what he did, but he was welcomed into the kingdom by the honor and the king himself. This leads us into the next truth about faith. There's one thing that really struck me about this passage. Um, I heard someone say, and indeed truly, that everyone abandoned Christ at his last hour. What seemed like something great and extraordinary was seemingly coming to an end. The cross in that moment was not a symbol of victory, but of defeat. At such a point, the thief on the cross had faith in Christ. He saw through the eyes of faith when he himself was on the cross bearing the same judgment and suffering just like Christ was. It must seem certainly like a man, a blind man, following another blind man into the pit of death. At such a point, he believed he had faith in Christ and it was counted him as righteous, just like Abraham or Paul on the road to Damascus. They all encountered Christ and they believed. For what, we may ask, that brings us to our third truth about hope, for a promise of eternal life to be with Christ forever. Do you ever wonder when you read this verse, you shall be with me in paradise? What does that mean? It means the kingdom of God is real. The promise is real, and there is a place for us through the only way, which is Christ himself, our Savior and King. So we hope even in death and suffering of this world, we don't mourn like we have no hope. Because when evening comes, we know that the morning is on the way. Let us be reminded again this evening through these last words of Christ, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That the salvation that Christ gives is simple. It is a gift through grace, not of works. We simply need to come to him with faith. So what does this mean for us this evening? Friends, we need not try to earn our salvation through good works or our own strength. The work has been done. Don't get me wrong. This is not cheap grace. It is not a pill that you take and you can do whatever you want. No. Too often we think that we are better than the other because we did this, or at least we didn't do this. But friends, let us be reminded, we are no better than the thief on the cross. We did nothing to deserve this gift. In fact, we, just like the thieves, needed to be on that cross. But because Christ took our sins and gave himself up for us, we are saved. The thief had to believe. He had nothing to offer, even if he wanted to. He, literally, he was literally at the end of his rope. 
and he chose to believe. He gave his offering very much like the woman in the story of the woman and the uh, might in that parable. He gave the most important offering. He gave his heart. He believed, and even though it seemed insignificant to others, he received eternal life because that's what Christ wants from us, not a show of what we can do for him, but to believe in faith. Amen. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Woman, here is your son. It was this declaration during Jesus' final act of obedience, a gruesome death on the cross that we see Jesus carrying on empty. Sure, in the Gospels, we've seen Jesus care before, healing the untouchables, dining with the reproachables, communing with the deplorables, but it is in this declaration that we see the depth of his care, the lengths his care is willing to go. Philippians 2, 7 says that Christ emptied himself. He gave everything he had. The God-man who gave up his divine privileges, who on earth had no home, who depended on others for food, who through an undressed trial and verdict at this point had no dignity, who on the cross was giving up the very last thing he had, his life. He still had not emptied himself of his unfailing love. Woman, here is your son, shows that Jesus cares even while suffering. The God-man, Jesus, perfect in every way, unjustly tried and convicted, beaten, battered, tortured, of all people, he had the right to be concerned for himself, to care for his needs, to cry out for help, for justice, for rescue. But the depth of Jesus' love meant that until the very end, Jesus would care for others on empty. A middle-aged woman who likely had lost her husband at this point, whose other sons we know at this point thought Jesus to be a crazed lunatic, would soon be utterly alone. Nobody to care for her when her eldest son would soon breathe his last breath. Jesus, knowing the future needs of his mother, in one final act of earthly care, bestowed the responsibilities of sonship on John, the disciple he loved. In spite of the impending, complete emptying of himself, Jesus cared for his mother on empty. Throughout Scripture, the unfailing love of God, it's a key attribute that shows how good of a God he truly is. And it is in this scene of a dying son caring for his aging mother that we see that truly God's love never fails. No mocking, no spitting, no crown of thorns, no pain, no cross, no impending death could bring about the failure of God's unfailing love. In this declaration, woman, here is your son, we see Jesus caring on empty. In this declaration, woman, here is your son, we see Jesus' unfailing love on full display. The same unfailing love that he had at his death, he has now in his kingdom, now and forevermore. The Jesus that cared on empty for his mother is the same Jesus that we gaze upon tonight. Near the cross, her vigil keeping, stood the mother worn with weeping. 
where he hung the dying Lord. Through her soul in anguish groaning, bowed in sorrow, sighing, moaning, past the sharp and piercing sword. Oh, the weight of her affliction, hers who won God's benediction, hers who bore God's holy one. Oh, that speechless, ceaseless yearning. Oh, those dim eyes never turning from her wondrous suffering son. Woman, here is your son.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luke chapter 22, verses 41 through 44. There's the iconic picture of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the author of that gospel has something to say about Jesus. He says that as he was praying, Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood. I don't know about you, but I've often thought, what in the world could cause Jesus to be in such anguish that literally the sweats from his brow would become like drops of blood? And I here tonight to say, I think that we find that answer within this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing we want to realize about this question is that this is not a question of ignorance. It is here more than anywhere else that the cost of fulfilling the will of the Father becomes most clear. Jesus' greatest apprehension was anticipating his temporary separation from the Father. It is here more than anywhere else that we become aware and reminded of the seriousness of our sin, and sin always separates us from our God. And just as the first Adam separated himself due to the enticement of sin, now we see the second Adam, who had to be temporarily separated from God due to God's Hatred of sin. Thus, salvation is not a feeling. But salvation is about our position before a holy and righteous God. And although our feelings might change from time to time, if the gospel of Christ is the grounds for your relationship to God, it will remain unshaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, this is not a question of ignorance, but this is also a question of innocence. This is the first time that innocent lips have uttered such words. Yes, David did say these words in Psalm 22, but this is Jesus. This is the sinless son of God. It's a good reminder for us that on the cross, Jesus did not become a sinner, but he was only simply a substitute. You see, Jesus remained as holy as ever. Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Romans 5.18 and 19 puts it this way, He did not become a sinner, excuse me, Um, So then, as through one trespass, there is right condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many are made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Church family, this is not a question of ignorance. This is a question of... Of innocence, but lastly, this is the requirement for our imputed righteousness. You see, at the cross, we witnessed the unlikely intersection where the love of God meets the 
holiness of God. See, his holiness required a payment for the penalty of sin. And it is by his love that he offers himself as that very payment. God the Father treated Christ as though he was a sinner, though he was not, and had him die as a substitute in order to pay the penalty for the sins of those who will believe in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way, He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So church family, although salvation is free, here we're reminded tonight that it is also very costly. For it cost God the ultimate sacrifice. This is the one and only time in human history where God would be separated from himself. That God would be separated from his image, his word, and his glory. And the reason is quite simple. The reason is you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not a question of ignorance. This is a question of innocence. And this is the requirement for our imputed righteousness. Amen. From the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. I thirst. At the hinge of human history hangs a man on a cross. Not just a man, but the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all that is, all that will be, has come. The one who was and is and is to come, the Savior of the world, and yet in this moment, a man suffering. He was fully human, fully divine. Though blameless, he hung as a guilty person. And at the doorway leading from his earthly ministry to his eternal reign, Jesus said, I thirst. The life spring of all creation, the one who invites the thirsty to drink, the voice that commands the clouds to rain or to dry up, the voice that commands deep waters to be still or to rise, the well that never fails, the giver of living water hung from a wooden beam and said, I thirst. This thirst was at once intensely physical and profoundly divine. This was a thirst of body and of spirit a longing at the intersection of his human form and his divine reality. And in this moment, this point of contact between the spiritual realm and physical reality, he allowed himself to feel it. Physical desire, a longing, spiritual desire. The agony of crucifixion dehydrates the body through immense sweat and the loss of blood and other fluids. The body begins to atrophy and throng with thirst. The wounds from which he hung grew wide from the weight of his body. 
His open flesh against the wooden beam would have burned and a fever broken out from head to toe. Any person in this state would have cried out in thirst. And Christ had submitted himself to the bonds of human flesh, to the pains and the needs of the human body, even to the point of death. He knows the weakness of blood and bone. Sisters and brothers, ours is not a savior out of touch with your physical needs. Thirst is a dissatisfaction of the body, a longing of the mind for something that it needs, but it doesn't have. Surely Christ had experienced thirst before in his life, but there is a different thirst, a deeper thirst that he was experiencing for the first time. Lack of hydration in the body creates a craving for water. Our souls crave a perfect communion with our Creator. As the deer pants for flowing streams, as our tongues long for water when we're hot and dry, our souls thirst for God. Jesus knew the thirst, and he knew how to quench it. When he greeted the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. Jesus knows the beauty and the satisfaction of soul-quenching communion with God. He himself is the source and the means. And yet, in this moment, he hung from the cross, separated from God the Father as a sacrifice, And he felt this thirst too. His physical body and his spirit shared the same cry. I thirst. Brothers and sisters, are you thirsty? In your body, do you feel need? In your soul, do you long for communion with God? Look to the cross and take heart. He knows your thirst. We do not have a Savior who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect knows the depths of our thirst. And why? Why did he deny himself in this moment? Because he loves us. He loves you and he loves me. How great a love. To give himself up for us, to know a thirst he had never known before for us. Spurgeon, meditating on this, said, How great the love which led him to such a condescension as this. Do not let us forget the infinite distance between the Lord of glory on his throne and the crucified Christ dried up with thirst. A river of the water of life, purest crystal, flows today out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and yet he once condescended to say, I thirst. In the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30a, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. When Jesus uttered these words, what exactly was finished? 
The phrase that is finished is a translation of one Greek word, tetelestai. To the Greek readers of John's original text, it would have easily been understood to be, it is finished, or that a debt has been paid in full. But Jesus, however, would not have been speaking in Greek, nor in Latin, the language of the Roman occupation of Jerusalem. If he were speaking in the common language of the people, he would have been Aramaic, or I think more likely, he would have been speaking in the temple language of Hebrew. The Hebrew word that would have been rendered as tetelestai in the Greek is shalom. We're all familiar with the word shalom. It means peace. We know that shalom is used as a greeting. I greet you in peace, shalom. We know that shalom is used as a parting word. Depart in peace, shalom. But in the the context of the temple and the sacrifice, shalom has a much deeper meaning. Shalom means that there's been restoration in the relationship with God. There is a renewal. There is a completion in that relationship. In this law, we see requirements of sacrifice. The sacrifice can only be off, can be offered by anybody, but can only be performed by a priest. The priest can only perform a sacrifice at specifically scheduled times. He couldn't just go in on a whim and say, okay, today's sacrifice day. He couldn't make a special appointment with a, a particular dignitary to offer sacrifice. It had to be done at an appointed time. The priest, in order to offer a sacrifice, had to be consecrated. That meant he had to offer his own sacrifice for his own sin. He had to bathe to be ceremonial clean, and he had to wear the the ordained garments, the linens, that were prescribed in the law in order to enter the temple and make a sacrifice. The sacrifice that was offered, it must be from an animal that is considered clean, one that is good for food. Not any animal can be used as a sacrifice. The offering had to be an appropriate offering, free from defect or or from flaw. And the law provided for annual sacrifices in order to renew our fellowship with God. However, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 tells us, since the law has only a shadow of good things to come and not the reality of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. Jesus became the one offering suitable to make atonement for humankind and renew our relationship with God. Shalom. The author of Hebrews continues, Every priest stands day after day 
ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus alone was a high priest qualified to offer sacrifice to renew the relationship between God and humankind. Tetelestai. According to the will of God, the appointed time has come. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. It is finished.
In Luke 23, 46, we hear Jesus cry, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Let us read the passage surrounding this word, beginning in verse 43 and ending in verse 46. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Notice that Jesus gave up his spirit willingly. None among us have a choice in the fact of our death. Whether time comes at age 12, at age 24, or at age 122, we are all born in iniquity and destined to die. A destiny which each of us confirm by our own individual sin. Romans 15:12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All but one. And him because he was not and he is not like any other man. Jesus, God made flesh. Hebrews 4.15 says that he has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Death had no claim on Jesus' life. Yet Jesus, at age 33, chose to die. And having said this, he breathed his last. One thing you will notice in all of the Gospels is that immediately after the final cry of Jesus, the moment of his death is always described as an active, not a passive event. The ESV says in Matthew that he yielded up his spirit. In Mark and at Luke, it says, he breathed his last. And at John, it says, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Death is not something that was done to Jesus. 
It is not something that had to happen to him. It is something that he chose to do. Why do such a thing? Because seeing our hopeless estate, he loved us. On Christmas, we sing, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared. We were hurtling inevitably toward a hopeless death, condemned by our own sin, until he appeared. Paul puts it this way. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus chose to die to deliver us from slavery to sin and death. The second thing to notice is that Jesus gave up his spirit literally. In verse 43, Jesus says to the criminal on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. Today is Good Friday. It is not Easter Sunday. We know that our Lord would not rise from the grave for three days. So how can he say to the criminal that today you will be with me in paradise? He can say this because at death, Jesus' human spirit and the criminal's human spirit returned to the presence of God the Father where they awaited the bodily resurrection. Ecclesiastes describes death in this way. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. As we know, Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection came three days later, the firstborn from the dead. But notice that the criminal's human spirit, despite being in the presence of God in literal paradise, still waits to this day the bodily resurrection at the second coming of Christ. Our own human spirits will ascend to the presence of God at the time of our death to await the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't think the spirit of the criminal is moping in paradise, but I do think that this waiting, perhaps even longing, is a powerful indicator of the weight of our physical bodies. Let us then cherish these few days we have in them, caring for our physical alongside our spiritual needs and for those of our neighbors. At the same time, let us remember that this physical body will turn to dust, but our spirit will return to the presence of God who gave it. The final thing to notice is that Jesus gave up his spirit confidently. The death that entered the world through sin, through Adam's sin and through our own sin, is a hopeless death apart from God. Christ's death was different. Not only did he choose to die, he died confidently, exclaiming, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Beloved, I cannot at the hour of my death, which is a certainty, look confidently in my own authority in the face of a holy God. God to whom my spirit will ascend and before whom I must give account. But my Lord can and my Lord did and my Lord did so on my behalf. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Church, as we close this time together and leave this place, I encourage you to leave uh, as quietly as possible, reflecting on the cross and all that was said, sung, and heard tonight. We'll end our time as we always do with the benediction, which is simply a blessing for the road. So if you'd like to participate, you can extend your right hand with me to receive this blessing. May God, who gives us a new vision of life through the cross, enlighten our understanding, inflame our affections, and enable us to walk the way of the cross. And may the love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit surround us as we seek to discern that love. Peace be with you. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at soldiercarlisle.com. God bless.